Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. A good day to you, fine gentle people. And by gentle people, she means you, the Freak Family. How's it going? Good to have you here. Um, we have had a really exciting couple of days. Yep. Uh, in fact, last night we actually left the house. Oh man! And uh, because we were out of bread, and you wanted and, and tortillas. Yeah. You, you wanted to make some uh, quesadillas. 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 Currently on a quesadilla kick. And and we went to the I don't know what it was it was like one of those dollar store general. Dollar yeah. store. Yeah, one of those weird prairie stores. Right in the middle where of a field. <laughs> for miles. Yeah. And then there's one of those stores. Yeah. So we go in there and you bought some off brand tortillas. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> really good about <laughs> And uh they're called uh Extreme Wellness. Extreme Wellness. So every time that she's been making quesadillas over the past uh, few hours. Occasionally from the kitchen, I will hear extreme wellness. And I know that tortillas are on the way. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, I thought you were yelling something at uh, Alexa because whenever she doesn't do what you want, it sounds like you're scolding a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just feel like she likes to learn. You know, she tells <laughs> you she's always trying to learn. So I sometimes I feel like I've got to put on my preschool teacher voice. <laughs> no, that's not what I asked for, is it? Anywho, I got something for you here. Oh, oh, what mm. what is it that it's, you have for me? It's a story. Well, actually, it's 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 a, a series of facts that I think you'll find interesting. I love facts. I'm going to be talking about plants that will murder you if you give them the chance. I am into this a thousand percent. Um, Ranker says the manchineel tree can cause death if you just stand too close to it. <laughs> Yeah, this tree is found in Central and South Africa. It's also sometimes called the death apple. I feel like a oneness with this tree. I want... Yeah, do you? 
You know how like there are certain aesthetics that I get really into. Like when we watched Russian Doll, the whole time I was like, I just love this chick. I want to be like this chick. Right. This is the whole aesthetic that I want in my life. Now it's this tree. The next morning after we watched the first three episodes of Russian Doll, which by the way, bring us season two. Will oh my you gosh, already? please. Uh, Kat woke up with a real desire to start smoking again. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the Death Apple allegedly killed... Juan Ponce de Leon. The Fountain of Youth guy? That's the one. <laughs> uh, the small apples that grow on branches, they look really quite appetizing, but they're deadly, poisonous. Even if you take just a single small bite, uh, you'll go all Snow White. You'll start to live with gnomes? Yes. It's a weird side effect. <laughs> I you, guess so. You wake up in a forest surrounded by gnomes. <laughs> uh, no, you'll die. Uh, but this tree isn't just deadly if you eat it. Even if you're near this particular tree, it can kill you. If you touch the trunk or the sap, maybe even just pick the leaves, even if you're just close and you breathe the air, it can cause severe burns on your skin. Uh, and if you get it in your eyes, it'll blind you. Oh my gosh. Even if it's raining, let's say you're out in the forest and you see one of these trees and it's raining and you're thinking, I'm going to go stand under that tree uh, to stay warm or stay dry. Bad mistake because the water dripping off the leaves can burn your skin. Oh, my gosh. Does anything grow under the tree or is it just people that are affected by this business? I think it's mostly animals. Okay. Not wow. not so much other vegetation, uh, but again, even if even the air around it can cause pain in your lungs, which means that uh, the tree is harmful and even deadly if you uh, just get too close and breathe the air in. Where where might I find these trees? Or I'm sorry, better question: uh, Where might I avoid these trees? Uh, Central and South America. Okay, well that's where I want to move. So. <laughs> this is not great. Now we all know that poison oak and poison ivy can cause a rash and some discomfort, but it can kill you. Mm -hmm. Oh, it can. Poison oak and poison ivy, of course, can cause serious pains, itches. It can even leave blisters and maybe in more extreme cases, rashes and scarring. But in rare cases, it can cause death. Like if you eat it? I'm not sure if you if you eat it, but if you if you inhale smoke of oh. burning leaves, it can kill you. Can it poison ivy your lungs? Yes. Is that what happens? What it can do is cause your throat to swell up and then you can't breathe anymore. Oh, no. Uh, and, it, and it's not that uncommon. Poison oak and poison ivy grow in the midst of other plants. So, you know, some guy's out, decides he's going to burn a patch of land to clear the, uh, the land off. Oftentimes, he can end up uh, burning some of this poison oak or ivy and the smoke from these plants when burned will get in your lungs and throat and cause a reaction so strong in some cases that your throat will swell shut and you die. So don't go smoking poison ivy. Guess not. Have you ever heard of the rosary pea? Um, no. <laughs> what just went through your mind when I said <laughs> rosary pea? <laughs> I, I can't say because this is a family show, okay, right. uh, but I can tell you it was probably uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> the Rosary Pea has a history of killing people, uh, especially those who work in the jewelry industry. Oh, is it like would they use it for beads or something? That's and then... exactly right. The mm -hmm. Rosary Pea is commonly listed as one of the most poisonous plants in the world. Even if you just were to eat one single pea, you could die from poison. It is so highly toxic. Wow. But this pea ends up killing jewelers. 
more than anybody else. For centuries, jewelers have used this pea as a bead. Why are you eating beads? You're not eating the beads. You're stringing them, uh, making rosary beads and things of that nature. And if you're using a needle and you, you poke through the pea and then you're, you know, accidentally stick yourself with the needle, you're going to die. Oh. It enters the bloodstream and it leads to death. There are many reports of jewelers from all over the world dying after pricking their finger while trying to make rosary beads out of these poisonous peas. That's very unfortunate. Giant hogweed kills children. Hogweed, yeah. Hogweed, isn't that the one that looks like Queen Anne's lace? Yes, it does. Yes, we had an issue with hogweed here in Maine a couple summers ago. Yes, it's incredibly invasive. Mm. It can grow up to six feet in height uh, with white flowers on the top. Like you say, it looks kind of like Queen Anne's lace. And it's beautiful. But the sap from this plant is unbelievably toxic. It can cause severe burns and blistering if you touch it. Even just if it brushes, if it brushes against your skin, it can uh, cause a rash. But symptoms sometimes, well, for the most part, in fact, will only show up once that skin is exposed to sunlight. Mm. So you can brush by this and not think anything of it if it's a cloudy day. And then maybe the next day it's sunny and you go out and you'll just have it's like you're a vampire. <laughs> What I heard is that, um, similarly, if you get the sap in your eye, it can yeah, blind you. It can blind you. And if it, uh, if you were to cut yourself, and it, somehow it gets into your bloodstream, it's very quick and painful death. Oh. Uh, in the UK, it's actually a criminal offense to plant these uh, hogweeds. Mm. And they do kill children every year. Uh, they're known as the most dangerous plant in Britain, and it spreads like crazy. Yeah. It can produce up to 50,000 seeds per year, and as you mentioned, incredibly invasive. Yeah. Um, I, we have a ton of Queen Anne's lace, so when we were being told, like, hey, keep an eye out for this hogweed, <laughs> of course, naturally, I was sure that it was growing all around our house, so mm -hmm. I went on a spree. You want a hogweed spree? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hogweed to me sounds like an insult that you would use in fourth grade. <laughs> Quit being a hogweed. Get out of here, you hogweed. It reminds me of a joke that I love. Danny Zucker tweeted in like 2011, <laughs> and I still think about it all the time. Uh, I'm constantly amazed at how different my twin daughters are. Lisa is so much more positive and confident than her sister Hogface. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> All right, here's a plant. <laughs> here's a plant that has hundreds of tiny venomous needles. Oh. It's called Dendrochnide moroides. And it's, well, that sounds like death right there. It does. Moroitis. Or it sounds like some sort of really painful medical condition involving your lower gastrointestinal area. This stuff is native to the northeast of Australia. And it, uh, wow. it lives in lush green environments and doesn't really look deadly at all. It's actually quite attractive. And that's the trick. All it takes is just brushing up against the leaves or the stems and you will immediately feel excruciating pain. And that can quickly lead to death. Oh, it no. stings you with these hundreds of tiny venomous needles that inflict pain that not only lasts for months on end, but it might go away for a while and then reoccur. Oh, that's upsetting. For years after you touch the plant. In worst cases, you'll start with feeling a burning sensation, which quickly progresses to a severe reaction to the toxin. Without medical care, uh, you can be dead in hours. Sometimes 
Even being near the plant can cause irritation to your eyes, nose, and throat. Just, again, breathing air Yeah. that it, it blows around in. Well, it's telling you, get out of here. I'm uh, not for you. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> have you ever heard of monk's hood? I have heard of monk's hood. See, I, I heard it once before, but I thought it was just a euphemism for a foreskin. Because immediately... You know, my mind goes, I thought, never mind. Monk's hood, um, it's uh, it's beautiful. It's a decorative flower, but it's incredibly dangerous <laughs> to be around. See, I just keep thinking about the genitals. So mm. it's, yep. it's beautiful. It's decorative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure, I guess. Simply touching this plant can end you oh. in just a few hours. And if you somehow ingest the beautiful blue petals, it's, it's, it's over. It's a death sentence. For you. In one case, in 2014, there was a guy who was, he was a gardener. His name was Nathan Greenaway, working in a millionaire's yard. He absentmindedly walked past a monk's hood plant, and he just let it brush against his bare skin. He very quickly fell ill and was rushed to the hospital, but the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong. He died five days later. Multiple organ failure. Oh, my gosh. And uh, it was just from him, they found out later, brushing up against... A monk's hood. That's serious. It's serious. See, I thought you were going to talk about, like, if you give a Venus flytrap enough time, like, he'll <laughs> nom nom your ass right off. Uh-huh. Uh, but no, you just have to walk near these plants. Just walk cool, near cool. it. Yep. Now, white snake root. Oh, yeah. White snake. Totally. No, not the 1980s hair band fronted by a spandex-clad David Cloverdale. Formerly of Deep Purple? No. Um, white snake root. It destroys people when it's ingested, but not the way that you might expect. Well, white snake will melt your face off, so, <laughs> you know. It seems like white snake root has found a very ingenious way of uh, getting into your system. It's not poisonous to cows, And it's, in fact, quite a delicious meal for a cow. Okay. And so they'll eat it all up, and then the cow's milk becomes infected with this white snake root, and it can kill you. This is the reason why so many people died in history from what is called milk sickness. Oh, yeah. And then, so people would talk about milk and say, I'm a fool for your loving milk. (laughs) I'm a fool for your milk loving In uh, 1818, Abe Lincoln's family, they moved to uh, southern Indiana. Mm -hmm. And uh, Nancy Lincoln, his mother, went out to help a local family. They they had fallen ill with milk sickness, and they didn't know what caused it. And she, while she was there, drank some of the poisonous milk, and it killed her. Here I go again. In October of that year. Luckily, milk regulations today has removed all chance of poisoning from um, store-bought milk. So That's good. just don't go out into a pasture and drink it right out of the cow. Right. And, and you're fine. <laughs> you should be okay. You should be. You should be able to look at your glass of milk and say, is this love? Wild black cherries. Yes, they're delicious. Black and, cherry? Yeah. When you, when you think of cherries, you, you think of uh, tasty fruit. Yeah. Unfortunately, this plant actually has, well, a darker side. Um, when a cherry tree is stressed by weather conditions or disease, it causes the leaves and branches to wilt, and this makes them highly toxic. Oh. It creates a cyanide that can kill livestock if ingested, 
And uh, this can, of course, also happen to humans. It's very unlikely, but it is possible a person could accidentally ingest um, a leaf while trying to pick or eat cherries that would otherwise be a delicious snack. The tree is generally not deadly, of course, but if you stress the tree or it becomes stressed because of weather conditions, it will defend itself from cows and hungry children. I did not know this. So be careful. Make sure your cherry trees aren't stressed. And finally, the largest carnivorous plant known. It's too small to kill a person, but it is deadly nonetheless. Britannica says, Nepenthes, also called tropical pitcher plant or monkey cup. I love pitcher plants. They're beautiful. They are the largest carnivorous plant that we know of right now. It reaches up to almost five feet in height. What? Yes. I didn't realize they got that large. And the actual pitchers themselves, giant flower blossom thing that looks like a pitcher, mm-hmm can be up to uh, a foot. I am looking at a picture right now and I am blown away. I had no idea they got this big. (gasps) And because they are this big, animals, they'll eat small animals, rodents, you know, chipmunks, whatever happens by. And here's how it happens. Oh. Animals are attracted by the nectar secreted from the underside of the trap's lid. The prey often will fall, slip from the mouth of the pitcher into a pool of liquid at the bottom and are unable to escape because, you know, it's it's gravity and it's slippery. Right. And then the liquid inside it is essentially like digestive juices, right? Pretty much. And also there's like downward pointing spikes so they can't climb out. Clever girl. And so what happens is, you know, like a, so let's say a mouse. Uh, I'm going to go to this plant because it smells really delicious. And it falls in and then the the lid closes like a trash can. And then the flower eats the animal. It digests it. Oh, yeah. Fortunately, there aren't any that we found that are big enough to digest a person. There was a a rumor at one point, like sometime in the 1800s, that in Madagascar, there was a man-eating tree. Oh. And the idea was that um, it had some sort of uh, spiky things, and when the wind blew it, it would... It could grab you and hold you, and then it would digest you. Oh. And, uh, but that was a hoax. I'm reading it, and I'm going, oh, my God, this is great. I'm going to do a talk. Oh, f- shit, it's not real. <laughs> I got my information from Ranker and uh, also Encyclopedia Britannica. Be nice to those plants, because when you're not looking, they might off you. And now, that thing in the middle. Atsi, the Iceman, is a 5,300-year-old mummy that was discovered in the Alps in 1991. Over the next 13 years, seven people connected to Atsi's discovery died. The mummy's examiner, Conrad Spindle, died the same year that Atsi was excavated. The discoverer, Helmont Simon, died in a blizzard accident not too far from where Atsi was found. When Simon died, Otzi's archaeologist Tom Loy stated, I think it's a load of rubbish. It's all media hype. The next thing they'll be saying is, I'll be next. He died shortly after. Did you know that I have to record these liners live every time this podcast gets played? I haven't slept in years. This is The Box of Oddities. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, 
If you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well i've got the podcast for you i'm sean piles and i host nerd wallets smart money podcast on our show we help listeners like you make the most of your finances i sit down with nerd wallets team of nerds personal finance experts in credit cards banking investing and more We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Box of Oddities is provided in part by listeners like you on Patreon. You can support us too. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. Thank you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Jordan sent us an email. Hey guys, I started listening to the podcast about eight months ago and I'm currently on a journey toward the first episode. I guess that Jordan's listening to it backwards. Can I just say, I know that irritates you. You're fine. (laughs) I have learned so much from you guys than I ever have learned in school. (laughs) I just graduated high school and I obsessively force my siblings and my dad to listen to the podcast every chance I get. It would be ignorant for me to say that this year has only been tough for me because I know a lot of people have had it much worse. But nonetheless, you guys honestly keep me going. Anyway, the purpose of this email was to say that every time a topic comes up on the box of oddities, for whatever reason, within a couple of days, I always seem to learn about it in one of my courses. Like I was listening to you guys talk about how they used to dissect people for fun and charge people to watch. And then a few minutes go by, I'm taking notes for one of my history classes, and it's just brought up, and I was like, what? (laughs) First of all, what are you doing listening to the Box of Oddities during your history class? I always forgot that these things, you know, like actually happen and are recorded in history, but it's uh, just super interesting and weird for me. That's what we call a Box of Oddities effect. And they have been happening with more and more frequency. It's true. It must have something to do with the Mercury's moon. in retrograde or <laughs> something like that. Moon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's a weird box of oddities effect for you. You listening right now? You said you wanted some sort of a sign. Here it is. That's going to fuck with somebody's head. <laughs> also, if you could, I would very much appreciate it if you give a shout out to my brother Landon because his birthday's coming up. Hey, he's, Landon. He's turning 14 and he loves you guys. Hey, Landon, happy birthday. And uh, it's it's signed uh, J-Dog, so. Hey. Thanks. Landon makes me think of Michael Landon, mm-hmm. of course. And then I was thinking, I wonder if he's named after Michael Landon. And then I thought, like, no, 14, it doesn't even make sense <laughs> that his parents would have watched Highway to Heaven. <laughs> or, or Little House. Just... Certainly not Bonanza. <laughs> Holy any hoozle. Any hoozle. What you got? I wanted to talk today. For me. Oh, sorry. That's all right. Go ahead. Get serious now, because this is a bummer. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. March 8, 2014. Flight MH370, a Boeing 777, left Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. There are 239 people on board. There's 14 nationalities represented in the 227 passengers and 12 crew members. The flight is heading to Beijing Capital International Airport. Uh, The flight took off at 12.41 a.m. local time and reached a cruising altitude of 10,700 meters at 1.01 a.m. So Farak Hamid, the first officer, was flying the airplane. He was 27 years old. And this was actually a training flight for him. It was his last training flight, and he would soon be fully certified. So his trainer was the pilot in command, a man named Zahari Ahmad Shah. First of all, can I just interject, and I'm sorry, but the idea of somebody piloting a passenger jet and being 27 just blows my mind. You know, I mean, I'm so old. (laughs) 
I remember we got off the plane. We went to uh, Orlando last time we flew to Florida. I got off the plane and the captain comes out to say, "Hey," and I'm He's like, a baby. "He's like you're 12." <laughs> he was a baby. I thought it was. I thought he had a Cub Scout uniform on. <laughs> Turns out he's a pilot. The pilot gave me wings. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, he was he was young. But at the same time, we were just talking about Tom Brady yesterday. And you were like, can you believe he's like 43? And I was like, holy crap, that's old. You know, <laughs> it really depends on what we're talking about here. That's true. Yeah. In American football, 43 is old. <laughs> so um, the pilot in command was Zahari Ahmad Jah, And he was 53. He was one of the most senior captains at Malaysia Airlines, according to TheAtlantic.com. So First Officer Farik flew the airplane. Captain Zahari handled the radios. That's a pretty standard setup. And at 101, Zahari radioed that they'd leveled off at 35,000 feet, which is actually unusual because that's a superfluous report in radar-surveilled airspace. I guess the norm is for... Uh, captains to report leaving altitude, mm-hmm. not arriving at altitude. Interesting. Yeah. The aircraft communication addressing and reporting system, which transmitted data about the aircraft's performance, sent its last transmission at 1.07 a.m. At 1.08 a.m., the flight crossed the Malaysian coastline and set out across the South China Sea in the direction of Vietnam. Zahari again reported that the plane's level was at 35,000 feet. Eleven minutes later, as the airplane closed in on a waypoint near the start of Vietnam air traffic jurisdiction, the controller at Kuala Lumpur radioed, Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh, 120.9, good night. Zahari answered, Good night, Malaysian 370. He didn't read back the frequency as he should have, but otherwise the transmission sounded completely normal. Hmm. At 1.21 a.m., the plane stopped communicating with radar at Ho Chi Minh, Kuala Lumpur, and Bangkok. So this function, the communication with air traffic control, is controlled by one of two transponder mechanisms in the plane sending signals. So it's not like something the pilot has to do or anything. It's just part of the plane slash airport communication system. Neither of the signals showing up suggests that both of the transponders suddenly, for unknown reasons, just stopped working or that they were manually shut off. The Vietnamese controllers, meanwhile, saw MH370 cross into their airspace and then it disappeared from radar. They apparently misunderstood a formal agreement by which Ho Chi Minh was supposed to inform Kuala Lumpur immediately if an airplane that had been handed off was more than five minutes late checking in. They tried repeatedly to contact the aircraft, but no one was able to get in contact. Now, this this story just, it has intrigued me for a number of years. It, it is so bizarre. But I don't, I, I never really did a dive on this. Did, did they just disappear off the radar? I mean, what happened? Up to this point, yes. Okay. They've they're not able, they're not responding and the transponders are not working. Okay. So, so it, it looks to the traffic and air traffic control people as if the plane on their screen just disappears. Yes. Okay. Kuala Lumpur's Aeronautical Rescue Coordination Coordination Center should have been notified within an hour of the disappearance, but by 2.30 a.m., it still had not been. And then four more hours passed before an emergency response began. That was at 6.32 a.m., and that's about the time that the plane should have been landing Mm. in Beijing. Mm. 
The search for Flight 370 was initially concentrated in the South China Sea between Malaysia and Vietnam, where it was last communicating. So when the airplane stopped communicating with the air traffic controllers and such, that's where they started searching. Out over open water. Yes. And it was an international effort. 34 ships and 28 aircraft from seven countries were out there looking for this airplane. But that changed when additional military information became available. The aircraft was lost from ATC radar scans, but was tracked by military radar for an additional hour. Hmm. Military radar uses reflectance to show where items are in the air. And I'm sorry, I do not have the vocab to talk about this like a professional might. I'm just trying to relay the information. So I might say things like the things that they had rather <laughs> than the transponders. Blah, but you're going to get what I'm saying. Just hang with me. Okay. The review of this new information showed that not long after the communication ended, the aircraft deviated from its planned flight path, turning ever so slightly southeast away from its original northeastern course, followed by a sharp change to head west, crossing the Malay Peninsula and Andaman Sea. It continued on that course until it banked out over the island of Penang, and from there it flew northwest up the Strait of Malacca and out across the Andaman Sea, where it faded beyond military tracking range. Hmm. That was at 2.22. At that point, it's 200 nautical miles northwest of Penang Island in northwestern Malaysia. So Malaysia quickly assembled a joint investigation team. It consisted of specialists from not just Malaysia, but China, uh, the UK, United States, France, and it was led by an independent investigator in charge. So someone who is not directly related to the airline or anything like that. Teams from Singapore, from Vietnam, and Malaysia were searching the waters near Vietnam, which is partway between, as I said, Kuala Lumpur and Beijing, near the, where they'd lost that connection, about 12 hours after contact was lost. The next day, the staff at Inmarsat reviewed the log of communications between their network, which is basically like satellite information, and Flight 370, and discovered that Flight 370 had continued for several hours after contact with Whoa. air traffic control was lost. Wow. A few days later, the Wall Street Journal published the first report about the satellite transmissions, indicating that the airplane had most likely stayed aloft for many hours after going silent. Malaysian officials eventually admitted that that account was true. They knew this information, Ooh. and it's reported that they withheld that information. The initial sea searches were concentrated in the wrong place. So the search area was then moved and expanded. One of the big problems with this search is that the remote location of where all this is going on, it, it makes things really hard. One, just sending boats out to mm. locations takes time. There was one spot where they wanted to search, and it took the team six days to get there. What? So there's just oh there's an incredible, vast search area that they're working with, and time is really not working for them. So although the Malaysians were initially in charge of the entire investigation, they lacked the means and expertise to mount a, a real search and recovery effort uh, 
under the water. So the Australians, being great international citizens that they are, uh, they took the lead. And this is according to the Atlantic. The areas of the Indian Ocean that the satellite data pointed to, about 1,200 miles southwest of Perth, were so deep and so unexplored that first they had to map the undersea topography before they could send the side-scanning sonar vehicles down safely. Does that give you a creepy feeling in your tongue? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That it's so friggin' deep and yep. dark and cold and mm-hmm. uncharted. Yep. yep. Yep, 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 yep. So the ocean floor at this point uh, was just so uncharted. The, it was all ridgy and black and light has never been in these parts mm. before. <laughs> so, yeah, that makes me feel a little yeah. weird inside. Between March 18 and April 28, 19 vessels and 345 sorties by military aircraft searched over 1,800,000 square miles. Wow. And they're not finding anything. Not even any debris, right? They're not finding anything. Nothing. Wow. January 29, 2015. This is 327 days after the plane vanished. Malaysia officially declared the disappearance an accident. A report one year after the disappearance gave a detailed picture of delays and protocol violations before the search was launched, according to CNN. And that led to a lot of progress that should have been made not being made. One of the articles that I read called it an exercise in carelessness and incompetence. Wow. Not nice words. No. No. It's uh, it's tragic no matter who's to blame, but I often wonder in cases like this if it's just easier to blame the dead guy, you know? I mean, inexperienced pilot, be pretty easy to just lay the blame on. Some people did. Yeah. Some people tried. The thing is, this kind of situation is so rare that... The, you know, you know, this is not something you have to deal with. Mm. This is not something that happens on a daily basis that your boss is like, I've told you before, you always have to make sure that you reach out to Kuala Lumpur if within five <laughs> hours of a plane disappearing from the radar, you know, if this isn't a standard situation. No. Highly, so, highly irregular. Right. I imagine that when you encounter highly irregular situations, you've got to go find a book sometimes and be like, ah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, this says that we should have called them two hours ago. Yeah, there's a lot of things that went into this. Theories, as you said, uh, ranged across the board. It really gets weird. Some people believe that there was mechanical failure, that this was an instance of pilot suicide. The loss of the transponder signals spurred ongoing speculation about some form of hijacking, but no group or individual claimed responsibility. And it seemed very unlikely that hijackers would have flown the plane into the southern Indian Ocean, and that the signals had likely been turned off from the inside suggests suicide by one of the crew, but nothing suspicious was found about the behavior of the captain, the first officer, or the cabin crew prior to the flight. Like you said, there were those that posited the theory that the pilot deliberately crashed the plane. 
But there was a 495-page document that said that neither the pilot nor the first officer showed psychological signs suggesting that they could have deliberately crashed the plane. It was um, There was no behavioral signs of social isolation, change of habits or interest, self-neglect, no drug or alcohol abuse. It was it was a detailed investigation so into these it would, men. It, it's possible, but but unlikely. But unlikely. Now, what about the black box? It's really hard to say because we don't know what happened to this plane. But I want to know what happened to this plane. <laughs> Beginning on April 6th, an Australian ship detected several acoustic pings, possibly from the Boeing 777's flight recorder or black box. And that was about 1,200 miles northwest of Perth. And it turned out that after... Searching and searching and searching and searching. They were unable to find anything. And it was determined that those pings that they heard, if they were, in fact, coming from this plane's black box, it would have been right at the ass end of its battery life. Oh, my. The data link between the aircraft and satellite telecommunications network was lost somewhere between 107 and 203 when the aircraft didn't acknowledge a message sent from the ground station. Three minutes after the aircraft left the range of radar coverage, we talked about that point in time, the aircraft satellite data unit transmitted a logon message and then reconnected and stayed connected for another six hours. So that doesn't make huh. any sense. One of the other flight disasters that was referenced in this article I was reading said that um, the black box that was missing from a different plane, um, even though they knew exactly where it was in the sea, it still took them months to find it. So when you consider that you're looking in this enormous expanse yeah. of ocean and you don't even know if you're looking in the right spot. It... Now, there's also the issue of hydrophones. So there are undersea microphones, basically, that scientists use to get all kinds of information. And they're called hydrophones, which delights me because it makes perfect sense to me. Hydrophones. Okay. But it was determined that uh, after listening to the data from the time that they think the plane might have crashed, the only sounds that were found would have been natural geological sounds. So there are no sounds that suggest, hey, this plane crashed into the water. Hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the plane didn't crash into the water. The ocean's a big place. It's true. It is. There's one scientist who said that the sound of the plane crashing into the water may have been uh, lesser than most people think because it would have had to have entered the water almost vertically because... And here we go. The first pieces of MH370 were discovered about a year after the plane went missing. I didn't realize they'd even found any. There was a fragment of the plane's wing that washed up July 2015 on Reunion Island, well, thousands my, of miles. It was my time travel theory. Thousands of miles from Kuala Lumpur. That guy who said that the plane would have had to have entered the water almost entirely vertically, his theory was based on the fact that if it hadn't, it basically would have disintegrated and they would have never found this flapper on. Wow. But others argue that. They say, no, we've seen things survive crash landings before and there are bits and pieces about it happens. 
So over the next year and a half, 26 more pieces of debris were found on the shores of Tanzania, Mozambique, South Africa, Madagascar, and Mauritius. Three of the 27 pieces were positively identified as coming from Flight 370. Mm. I think it was like 17 more pieces were likely to have come from Flight 370. But when you consider how many pieces make up a plane, finding 27 pieces is such a small amount. The first piece that was recovered, the right wing flaperon, was carefully studied, and it was determined that the plane had not undergone a, quote, controlled descent. Somehow they were able to tell that from the flaperon. I don't understand that, but I respect people who know planes do. (laughs) So this wasn't a gentle glide into the water. It was not. All right. May 2017, when the Malaysian Transport Ministry announced that it would call off the search. But in January 2018, the Malaysian Transport Ministry teamed up with Ocean Infinity, a private firm based in the U.S., and they did search more of the southern Indian Ocean, including a 25,000 square kilometer target area that hadn't been searched before, and there were no new findings. So in July 2018, the Malaysian government, which had largely taken the responsibility for the investigation of the disappearance, issued what they called the final report, and they said that even though there were many theories uh, that this was just an accident, but they have no detailed decision as to what actually happened to Flight 370. As we said, so many theories, hijacking, which experts have all but ruled out as plausible, and that the plane was shot down and there was a cover-up, that there was a lightning strike, aliens took it, mm-hmm. There, uh, it was a test for cloaking devices, even speculation that the plane was being flown to the moon. That's... Yeah. A theory considered by the Malaysian government, though, and the Australian Transport Safety Bureau is that the passengers and the crew of MH370 were incapacitated by an oxygen deficiency. Hmm. They speculated that everyone on the plane, including the captain, fell unconscious. Some believe that this had something to do with a fire on board. Either way, the plane would have then been on autopilot and just flew until it ran out of fuel. And then plummeted into the ocean. Mm. That's really tragic. It's terrible. It's terrible. And one of the articles that I found and was reading was just about some of the stories of the people who are on board. And it really puts into perspective, like, how these people were just living their lives. Mm. And all of a sudden, their families have no idea where they are or what happened to them. And it's terrible. And it's still something that people are angry about. And they are uh, protesting the government to look into it more because they don't feel like their families were done right by as far as this investigation goes. And they don't feel like they were um, told the whole truth. And it's very upsetting. They deserve some closure. For sure. And uh, just... And just by the government saying, now we're closing it, is not closure. Mm. Yeah, they deserve answers. That's horrifying and tragic. It's terrible. And there's so much information here. And I I knew that I couldn't cover it all, um, but I tried to get, like, the main points. And it's one of those things where uh, I, I'm going to get emails like, hey, you didn't yep. mention blah. Yep. And I get that. That's mm-hmm. absolutely valid. That's true. Um, there's no way that I could have covered it all. And there are so many things that... There are lots of theories, and a lot of people 
feel very strongly about these theories. Mm -hmm. And so I'm probably going to get some of those emails too. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) There are a couple of different topics that I have hesitated to do for exactly that reason. Yeah. Is that it is so complicated and so complex that I'm afraid that even if I just kind of go forward with the skeletal description of what what's going on there, I'm not even going to remotely do it uh, any any justice. So I applaud you. You did. Well, a, I think you did a good job. I've almost done this twice before. Yeah. Uh, so I had some information already pulled together, but I finally got the balls to do it. Nice. Well done. Well <laughs> done, madam. It's uh, it's tragic for sure, but it's super curious. And very unsatisfying at the end. I did want to mention before we wrap up, um, we are in the very early stages of planning a, um, a fall tour. And we're looking at October. Um, and that's assuming that everything is safe <laughs> at that point for us right. all, all to go out. But we're thinking of doing a, a 2021 Halloween tour. And uh, we are in the process of identifying not just uh, cities that we would like to go to, but venues. And if you have any suggestions, I know we've re- we've received some already mm-hmm. from from the freaks. Uh, please uh, send us an email. Uh, what city you're in, what uh, venue you think would be good. If you want to shoot the venue an email with our email address or or social media contacts. Um, we would certainly be uh, thrilled to take a look at them. I really enjoyed getting a couple of forwards of emails that people have sent to venues and then they forwarded it to us. Like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm doing my job. Yeah, <laughs> and it's yeah. like, wow, you are going above and beyond and I like it. <laughs> so thank you for that. Yep. Also, thank you to Rick and Steve for sending us another book. Uh, Four of the Three Musketeers. Very excited to dive into that. It's about the Marx Brothers. Thanks, guys. I mean, it was... It was addressed to you. Yeah, it was, because I'm a Marx Brothers guy. Um, Not that you aren't. No, I have no interest in the Marx Brothers. Okay, well, you're an evil person, and we're getting divorced. almost bring up Duck Soup during our last episode, because soup is interesting. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We uh, look forward to hanging out with you guys again. We really appreciate that you have decided to spend some time with us. We do not take that for granted, and uh, we will see you soon. Until then. Keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The box of oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com on Facebook at facebook.com slash box of oddities podcast on Twitter at box of oddities and Instagram at box of oddities podcast copyright 2021 all rights reserved hi I'm Neil and I'm Ken and we are from the triviality podcast a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. 
All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.